Good evening. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and we're thrilled, we're thrilled to welcome you to our Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Just to let you know, one of our exhibitions on view now is The Art and Whimsy of Mo Willems. It's a fabulous family exhibition with, um, on an author and illustrator, and it's wonderful to bring the kids to this. If you're interested in any of our other exhibitions, we'd love you to return, pick up a brochure, has all our exhibitions, all our upcoming programs, and as always, we'd like to invite you to be members if you are not yet. You're, the membership supports all our programs. Tonight's program, Thomas Jefferson and the Empire of the Imagination, is part of the Bernard Nyren Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his support, which has enabled us to, to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical. Let's give him a hand. Thanks. I'd also like to thank Live Right, the publisher. Am I saying that correctly? Yes, OK of um, Dr. Gordon Reed and Dr. Onoff's book, new book, Most Blessed of the Patriarchs, Thomas Jefferson and the Empire of the Imagination, as well as Harper's Magazine for their collaboration on this event. Harper's Magazine has generously provided copies of their May issue of their magazine, which are available on our info table in our Smith Gallery just outside um, for all of you to take home with you. I'd also like to recognize our wonderful trustees, Sid Lapidus and Suzanne Peck, and all the Chairman's Council members with us tonight for all their great work and support as well. Let's give them a big hand. So the program tonight will last an hour. It will include a, a, a Q&A, question and answer session. And there will be a formal book signing after the program. The book signing is on the Central Park West Side. The museum store carries the author's books. The museum store is on the 77th Street side. And we are thrilled to welcome Annette Gordon-Reed, the Charles Warren Professor of American Legal History at Harvard Law School, back to New York Historical. She is a member of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at Harvard and is the Carol K. Forsheimer Professor at Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. She is the author of many books, including her latest, Most Blessed of Patriarchs, and the Pulitzer Prize winning, The Hemingses of Monticello. She is a member of the Board of Trustees here at New York Historical also, so we are thrilled to welcome you. We are also so glad to welcome Peter S. Onoff, co-author of Most Blessed of the Patriarchs to New York Historical Society. He is the Thomas Jefferson Foundation Professor Emeritus in the Corcoran Department of History at the University of Virginia and Senior Research Fellow at the Robert H. Smith International Center for Jefferson Studies at Monticello. Whew, that was a long. He is the author of numerous books on Thomas Jefferson and co-hosts the public radio program, Black Backstory with the American History Guys. I heard it's wonderful. Before we begin, I'd like to ask that you please Turn off any cell phones, electronic devices. Um, we ask for no flash photography. And now, please join me in welcoming our guests. Thank you.
Okay. Yeah. <laughs> here we are. Well, it's great to be here with all of you. Uh, you're a little bit blinding, but uh, I, we feel the love out there. Uh, I'm going to start by talking about us a little bit, and we'll get more and more serious as the evening unfolds, and we'll get totally serious when you ask questions, which we'll try to do pretty early on. It's been one of the great pleasures of my life to collaborate with my dear friend Annette on this book, and that's the only reason I'm collaborating, is because Annette is my collaborator. I never thought that I would write about a person because I do ideas. I could, I could empty this house instantly if I started talking about <laughs> <laughs> what I really do. Uh, but uh, Annette is not only a wonderful friend, but working with her has made me think about Thomas Jefferson as a person. So it's been a kind of education, and it's been fun for a, a retired old guy to think about that retired old guy at Monticello. And for the first time in my life, I actually sympathize. This is just among us with <laughs> Jefferson. We have debates about who has the biggest problem with Jefferson, and I used to accuse Annette of liking him too much. And now she's returning the favor, if it's a favor. But it's only when he's retired. When he's in responsible positions, I disown any connection. <laughs> so, so we thought we'd start by telling our origin story because, of course, Jefferson's declaration is part of, that's what I'm wearing right now, uh, it's not the original, is part of <laughs> the American origin story. So uh, we're just putting ourselves in the place of America. Uh, so put us there. Yes, well, I met Peter in the mid-'90s. I had written a manuscript, uh, Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, An American Controversy, where I was challenging the historiography of uh, the Jefferson-Hemings relationship, how people had written about it. And I finished this manuscript, and I decided that I wanted to send it to people who would really be likely to... Hostile people. Hostile like. people. People who would be hostile to what it was that I was saying, because I find that that's always a better way to do things. You don't want to talk to the amen you know, corner. You want to talk to people who might tell you where you're wrong. And because he was the Thomas Jefferson Memorial Foundation professor at UVA... Uh, How and, about the rest of my title? Now? And the, uh, and the, and the uh, successor to Merrill Peterson, and who was the successor to Du Malone, Malone. This is sort of this genealogy. I figured, I assumed that he would be hostile to this notion. So I called him up and asked him, out of the blue, if he would uh, read the manuscript. And he said that he would. And much to my surprise, he actually liked it. And so he actually championed it. And um, I ended up publishing the book at the University Press of Virginia. It's called the University of Virginia Press now. And uh, we've been friends ever since. And we've been involved in a conversation about Jefferson from that time period. Um, as he said, with sort of shifting views, shifting conflicting attitudes and so forth over the years. And when he announced or said that he was going to retire, which we did not want him to do, none of his friends wanted him to do that, I figured, well, there's some way I could sort of keep contact here. 
Uh, two reasons. I wanted to keep contact, but at the same token, I'm supposed to be doing a two-volume biography of Jefferson, sort of a soup-to-nuts biography of Jefferson. And I thought it would be good to work with him because he's the intellectual historian. I do social history and political history. Um, he does politics as well, but we sort of overlap. That this would be a way to approach his life, Jefferson's life, from different perspectives. And so I asked him to collaborate. And we started, I don't know how many years ago doing this, we got a, sort of got detoured at some point because I had to go off and do some other stuff. I mean, and he, you know, very gamely stuck with it. And uh, we went through a process of talking this out first. We Skyped every week. He was down in Virginia. I was in New York and in Cambridge and in England at various points. And we just sort of worked together in a way that historians don't typically work uh, to try to get one voice with all of this, and that's that's what we did. And so we ended up with this book. Okay, that's the personal stuff, but if you, <laughs> you, you could ask more Why did we write about yeah. this? Yeah. But Annette said that we wanted to bring these perspectives together, and maybe even more than that, what we're really aiming to do in this book is to take the public Jefferson, about whom you all know something, it's probably bad now, uh, the, the famous Jefferson, and the supposedly impenetrable and unknowable Jefferson, the private Jefferson, we wanted to put them together. And just to anticipate our broader theme, and we'll elaborate this as time goes on, the big argument of this book is that Jefferson's ideas are grounded and shaped by his personal private experience at Monticello and other homes. And it's from an intimate understanding of Jefferson, the man, in his private life, and his family life at Monticello, that you can begin to understand his ideas in a new and fresh way. We want to bring them together. We reject the idea that you can't know Jefferson. Of course, it's presumptuous of us to say, but we're presumptuous people, that we do know Jefferson. <laughs> And uh, I hope that readers will find this is at least a fresh approach to the man. No more sphinxes, no more impenetrable Jeffersons. This is a Jefferson who needs to be known as we think about what American history has to tell us. And it's not necessarily a happy story. There are a lot of different complications, as you can anticipate and well know. But we undertake this project with a and a preemptive sympathy. We want to see how Jefferson made sense of his own life. And we say the idea is not to talk about Jefferson, what we think he ought to have been doing in the world, because that forms a, a lot of the basis of Jefferson's scholarship, which you know I've said, we've said, we think is sort of in a ditch uh, right now, sort of talking about hypocrisy. Uh, people who write about him who don't know a lot about him or, or sort of an entry point into thinking about him, the word hypocrisy always comes. And even though we say in the book that we don't think that that's a good lens through which to view him, a lot of the headlines of reviews and various things keep talking about hypocrisy. And it's, not, it's exactly not <laughs> the opposite of what it is that we want to do, sort of remove that frame and to think about, again, not what we thought he ought to be doing in the world, but what he thought he was doing in the world, because he did have a plan uh, about how to go through the world, and a plan that sort of grew out of, as Peter suggested, 
all of the influences that went into making him who he was. And so the book is not a straight chronology. We go pretty much, we follow a chronology, but it's not he was born at Shadwell, Shadwell Fire, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident, and is it the fourth? You know, you just sort of walk through this life, uh, but we do it in a semi-chronological way, but talking about various themes. The first section, the introduction, is a section called North and South, and it sort of presents Jefferson, the old Jefferson. My who, guy. <laughs> the old Jefferson, uh, the new dead white guy, as you call yourself. Um, the old Jefferson who has received a letter from his granddaughter, Ellen, who has come north and is just flabbergasted by the sophistication of northern towns. He said, you know, they have inns that are clean and you can get horses and their roads and their public schools and compare this to our, you know, this is a place where, you know, the, the soil is underneath it is rock. I mean, they've had to work really, really hard to turn this into something good. And we have this abundant, fertile land. And look at the terrible state that the South is in. And she said, this is because of slavery. Slavery has held us back. And he kind of you know, sheepishly answers her. And this is an occasion for us to set up the idea of the importance of family to Jefferson and the mixing of his notions of family with his ideas about Virginia in the end of his life he sort of has to admit that all of the hopes that he had for the, for the old dominion had not come to fruition and that slavery was a reason for this. And so we go from there to three sections. The first is called Patriarch um, and the second one is called Traveler and the last is Enthusiast. And Patriarch takes off on the title. Um, that Yeah, maybe we should unpack that a little bit. Patriarch, it's a word that seems a little strange to apply to the great icon of American democracy. It's an archaic term, we would think. Why does he call himself the most blessed of the patriarchs? Well, that letter that Annette referred to is a letter that he writes to a star on Broadway now, uh, and Angelica Schuyler. Schuyler's sister. <laughs> we just wanted to get Hamilton out of the way. <laughs> And Jefferson has, is beginning to lick his wounds, anticipating it going back to the home, to a comfortable place after the abuses suffered at the hands of Alexander Hamilton. And it's curious that he's writing to Hamilton's sister-in-law, but these things get really weird. You think Hamilton, Jefferson, uh, how does she fit in? Well, go see the show. That's my last reference to it. <laughs> No, she met, they met him when he was in Paris, and yeah, he has yeah. a sort of flirtatious relationship flirtatious. with her, as, as flirtatious as he was with Mariah Carey, but he never wrote any famous letter to yeah. Mar Mariah Carey, what did I just say? <laughs> Jesus. <Hey. laughs> Ow. Ow, okay. We're talking oh, in Hollywood. Okay, Mariah Cosway. Oh. oh. Okay, oh. okay, oh. man. So that's Angelica is still in London, and he writes to her yeah. after he. Okay, and what he's telling her is that he anticipates going home, and he's the most blessed of the patriarchs because his family will be there. But it's not just his two daughters, uh, or one and a half daughters, or whoever's actually there. That's a long story, and you'll read about it in the book. 
uh, but it's also the enslaved people who live at Monticello. And he will, as he puts it, and Annette will correct my, I don't remember anything, uh, but it's something along the lines, I'll look out for the happiness of I have of my those. fields to farm, I have, you yeah, know, yeah. watch for the happiness of those who labor for mine. That is a striking reference to enslaved people. Jefferson is not blushing, he's not embarrassed. Here's a man who has tried to get right with anti-slavery people, abolitionists in Paris, who's written eloquently about what's wrong with slavery, yet here he is glorying in the fact that he's going back to his plantation and he's gonna live in the midst of his slaves. And what this starts us thinking about is what is Monticello, what happens there? And the first thing to keep in mind is that it's a household and it's supposedly a functioning unit, economic unit, that produces things. It doesn't really very much, though he's anticipating now that he is going to be a farmer. And that is, things are gonna happen at Monticello, which is basically through most of its career, it's being built for one thing. You wouldn't want to be there. Wait until he's dead to visit and wait another 150 years. Before when they really get it going. <laughs> it's a great place to visit. Now, we learned fairly, I just learned fairly recently, because I don't care about the house particularly, but I learned that the, the columns on the, uh, that would be on the east side and that they're very handsome now. It's a wonderful place, but they were poplar trees that had been cut to be proxies for the columns that weren't quite yet built yet. So it was a work in progress. But this household was supposed to be a unit of economic production, and it was supposed to, of course, not only support Jefferson and his exalted lifestyle, but provide for the future of the Jefferson family. This was an estate in a classic sense. It was supposed to provide for the family, and the family's extremely important to Jefferson. We spent a lot of time talking about what home means to Jefferson. And here's one first insight. He's away from it all the time, complaining that he's not there. He's really miserable about being out there, being in politics, because people are saying nasty things about him through much of his career. He's losing battles in the cabinet against people like Hamilton. Uh, there's one humiliation after another. Of course, he does become president. Things do work out for him. Uh, but <laughs> the first what? thing you gotta, you got to know about this guy is that he lives for politics. And that, that feigned hatred of politics is, well, it's just that. It's feigned. Well, it's, it, it's a feigned interest in politics because, as we say, the heart of his life is the American Revolution and his role in it and how he is going to help make the American nation. So you can't, I mean, it's an interesting thing today, people think you can have government and all of this stuff without politics, but you gotta have politics. That, that, oh, yeah. That's the key, you know, and he, you know, at that time period, you're right, mm -hmm. people don't mm -hmm. wanna stand for, you know, don't wanna run for election, they don't wanna be seen as ambitious, but his real ambition is not so much for himself. His ambition, he has a grand scheme for what he wants the United States of America to be. And that's what his obsession was. It's an ambition was. for his country. I just heard you call him in private conversation. I shouldn't divulge this. A megalomaniac. Well, no, you shouldn't divulge that. No, but I mean, you know, divulge that. But it's, you know, a person who has, I mean, to us it would seem this way. Who is this person who thinks that he is going to, you know, make this country and sort of, that has sort of invented it and it's going to, you know, um, sort of set its course. Um, so there's ambition there. 
and he doesn't like politics, but you've got to have politics in order to have an effective, effective government. Well, we talk a good line about bringing private and public together. Let's prove it to you. And a good place to start is precisely with this slur that he's a megalomaniac, because Jefferson's identifying with his generation. as And that idea of generation, of course, that's all about reproduction. It's about a peer group. It's, as we know, the children and the grandchildren. Those successive generations in Jefferson's political imagination constitute the nation. And those generations, the product of unions, marriages, and reproduction, those generations are the foundation of the republic, and they are themselves made up of a great affinity group, a family of families. That's what a generation is. His politics are obsessively focused on the succession of generations and on the component units of each generation, and that would be families like his own, or an idealized version of his own family, a family he rarely actually had, that gets back to the point again, he didn't, wasn't at home a lot. He had an idealized vision of it. He had an idealized vision of what we call a nuclear family, that is the white family within the broader household over which he presided. And that's the basic unit of politics. You could say that Thomas Jefferson is the first great advocate of family values. Yeah, yeah. Again, idealized because he doesn't have it. And we talk a little bit about, you know, home, um, one of the chapters. Um, he idealizes these things because he doesn't have them. He leaves um, Shadwell as a, as a young boy, like a three-year-old, and he's away from uh, Shadwell, and then he comes back, and then he's in boarding school, uh, a couple of boarding schools, and then he is in, you know, goes to William and Mary. He's away from Monticello. He's away from his home quite a bit. And family, he loses his wife. Uh, in 1782, he talks about 10 years of uncheckered happiness in, during his marriage, but of course there were a number of kids who died during that time period, and there, there were difficulties. So he has, when we talk about imagination in the title, it's his imagined world, the thing, his idealized world that he wants to take you know, his own family and sort of extrapolate out to, as you said, the community to the nation. And that causes all kinds of difficulties when you have within his country, Virginia as he saw it, a group of people that are difficult to incorporate into a family. That is to say, African-American people. What do you do with, uh, uh, with people who cannot be, in his society, assimilated into a family? Can you have um, a, a nation of people uh, and, and friends or people who, who you think are equals who cannot be right. your son-in-law, your daughter-in-law, and whatever. Right. And that's one of the points we make, and that is nation, people, race, those terms all flow into each other. They're not clearly distinguished at this time. And one of the most discomforting truths about the early American Republic, and one which we need to think about, is that this idea of the natural association of families, it sounds wonderful, but there are boundaries to it. And this is what Annette is talking about. And the boundary is a sexual boundary. It has to do with the mating pool. That is, who are acceptable mates with whom you could form new families. If you think of enslaved Africans and African Americans as a captive nation unjustly held in bondage, and you aim for their liberation 
You, you aim to emancipate them, but for them to enjoy true independence and self-government, it has to be someplace else because it's an enslaved, captive nation at war with the master class. And so this is his ideal, visionary solution. It's called colonization, familiarly. Colonize the enslaved people. Free them and colonize them elsewhere. Less kindly, it's called deportation. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the liberal, enlightened vision of somebody who's thinking systematically about an injustice, and here's his solution. These are the kinds of complications that Annette is alluding to that we explore in this book. So there is something about families that's natural, and any enlightened person would say that. You bring families together, they form attachments to other families through marriage, and that idea of a generation is an inspiring one. The earth belongs to the living. That's one of his famous statements from a letter to James Madison in 1789. But the other side of that, the darker side of the Enlightenment, is in a world of nations, that would be a world of races distinct from each other. The Irish are often called a race in this period, so it's a very fluid term. But this creates the kinds of problems that we're addressing in this book. Yeah, and it's... it's the question of what do you do with this group of people once they're emancipated. He, Jefferson could not imagine a group within a country who had second-class status, status. You're either a citizen or you're not. And he, doesn't, he wouldn't have seen how, how we lived from that time period to today. Blacks as second-class citizens constantly having to fight for your rights. I mentioned the other night that in a strange way, he sort of, or I don't know who, who is echoing whom because he comes afterwards, but Malcolm X sort of is chiding civil rights leaders saying, Why do you, how do you think you have to fight for your rights? If you're a citizen, you shouldn't have to fight for your rights. You either are or you're not. Well, Jefferson is sort of saying that as well, thinking, you know, in notes in the state of Virginia, Blacks will never forgive us for the things that we've done to them. How could they love a country that has treated them the way they've been treated? Whites will never give over, we'll never give up our prejudices against blacks. He can't say we should all get married together because that's, that's as we were that's saying, that's what a nation is supposed to be, yeah. is transgressing boundaries. But it's really, we talk about, and we say in the book, that is the transgression that he's really concerned about is black men and white women. He's not, he doesn't care about, and this is a very, very almost atavistic, sort of a primitive thing. Like the conquerors, when people conquer a nation, I I was talking to a bunch of geneticists, a bunch, well, there were three of them, um, at Harvard, (laughs) not a bunch, you know, get a bunch of geneticists together. It's a technical term, three geneticists, a bunch, um, who were saying they were looking at um, the Y chromosomes male chromosomes of black men in the Mississippi Delta. And there was this huge concentration of European Y male chromosomes in these men, namely meaning they have white ancestor, white ancestry, and they're guys. It's, so it's the, the conqueror's DNA goes into the conquered people's lives, right? Uh, their, their bodies, and, and they're, they're the generations, not the other way around. So he is much more concerned, and when he talks about a threat. It's black men who are the threat. Black women, he's not afraid of black women. It's men. When he talks about, 
you know, insurrection. It's men are going to do things. And the real concern about, um, about interracial mixture is black males having the access to white women that white men had to black women, red women, and white women. They claimed they had, you know, dominion over the bodies of all the women in societies. And the, the dominated males, the ones who had been conquered, they're kept away from it. So that's, that's really concerns him. I mean, he obviously in his own life, uh, not only himself, but his father-in-law, he hangs out with white men who uh, have black women, you know, who've had children with black women. So, but it's really, he's fixated on black men as the people who are potential warriors and potential, you know, anti-conquerors or whatever. And that's important. That's why the state of war that we're hypothesizing here, it's not just an abstraction, and it's not just planters' fear of servile insurrection. It's a fact on the ground during the period of the American Revolution when Jefferson first had these ideas because enslaved people were running away to the British. They were a fifth column. So this was not an imagined state of war. This is a real one. And as Annette suggests, in a real state of war, well, Jefferson would bet on the whites. They had the guns. They had the gun. Uh, they had, and the numbers. They really. had the numbers. And uh, one of his reasons for suggesting racial separation to avoid a war which would destroy the captive nation. It would be a kind of genocide. Now, of course, there's always a fear when you get into a war that you might lose, especially <laughs> when your enemy has powerful allies like the British. So there's a lot of anxiety built into this. So you might be asking, are they just going to talk about slavery? How do we make the transition to everything else? And I think the word patriarch helps us do this because that word suggests another way of thinking about enslaved people, domesticating them within a domain over which the patriarch, the father figure, has absolute control for their own good and for their own happiness. And it's this... This is the way that, in his own mind, he negotiates these things. That's why patriarchy, which seems so strange to us, is absolutely crucial. Because you think in two ways about the patriarchal figure. He is equal to other patriarchs. All men, in this case, are created equal. They govern as the governing class through consent. They're all equal to each other. But, of course, their dependents, who are naturally dependent, whether they're white women and children who are temporarily dependent, or whether they are enslaved people. In peacetime, when there's no threat that slaves are going to rise up, they don't have any potential allies, then Jefferson thinks, well, we can, we can run this place in a way that works for everybody's benefit. Yeah, yeah. One of the key insight, insights, and I credit Annette with this particularly, is to take Jefferson out of this world and put him in to France, where things start to look different for him. And this, we argue, is the crucial moment in the development of his ideas about slavery and about republicanism, that is, the future of the United States as a model for the rest of the world. Because when he leaves the United States and leaves Virginia, he's had a failed governorship. There had been an inquiry into his behavior, uh, which shamed him. He was exonerated, but he was not feeling great about Virginia. So he goes to France, and then he sees the tremendous inequality 
between the very rich. I mean, the gap between rich and poor in France and the, you know, the, the French rich people, aristocrats are like real aristocrats. The, you know, Jefferson, I mean. Those French women are pretty unnatural. Yeah, the too. women, the women of, he, you know, he's scared of the women there because they're, you know, forward and they're in public life and all of it. It's scary and, for people, for guys, you know. Yeah, it's scary. <laughs> so, he, so he looks back and says, you know, it doesn't look so bad. You know, compare their families are terrible. Our families are good. The French peasants are starving. They eventually, he's there when there's a revolution, and he's very happy about the revolution. You know, he's saying that you know, this is a way to get rid of inequality and so forth. But he thinks that it could be done differently in the United States, that the Republican nation, the people, where the people ruled, would be able to enact changes, including slavery. We were talking to an interviewer earlier about um, Jefferson's sense of optimism, and it's very difficult for us. I think we're a much more cynical age. He did actually think that the world was going to get better and better, that progress was a real thing, and that sort of optimism isn't something that we really key in on. So how would that happen anyway? Annette? How would it happen? Yeah, well, I mean, he's not, he's a visionary. This is the thing we really ought to emphasize. That's the subtitle, Empire of the Imagination. Mm -hmm. Well, he thinks it's a part of Enlightenment progress, science, People will, uh, will read. Right. Uh, they will come to a true religion, which he thought was Unitarianism. Uh, okay. <laughs> he predicted. I always like to stop now and ask how many Unitarians there are out there. <laughs> All right, we got one. We got Two. One. Yes. Yeah. You should know that he predicted that one day every young man. Every thinking young man. Well, you know, they were all going to think eventually because they're going to be enlightened. But I was going to say, but he yeah. has the word thinking. And they're all, right and this is the punchline they're going to be Unitarians. Wow. It didn't work out that way, of course. And this was, a, this was, I should say, a point of people often ask us if we had any kind of conflict while we were working on this. And I think the area of our biggest conflict was on religion. You know, I grew up in the United Methodist tradition. And I'm a lapsed Unitarian. He's a lapsed Unitarian. He's, he's, <laughs> how, do you, how does one become a lapsed Unitarian? <laughs> does that define lapse? But... Uh, but Anyhow, anywho, um, so when Jefferson proclaims himself a Christian, I was like, no. Really? No. Really? Uh, really? Really? Uh, and he convinced me after some sort of pained looks, because you may be a lapsed Unitarian, but you're still loyal. And I could see that perhaps my suggesting that Jefferson wasn't a Christian might have been I was acting in a two, I was dogmatic. I dogmatic was is the word for it, absolutely. <laughs> and so I think he convinced me that I should take his religion. He wasn't just saying it to get along with people. And, you know, of course, Jefferson very famously takes a razor blade to the Bible and sort of creates his own Bible uh, without miracles, without all of the things that offended his sense of science. Uh, and he does it because he's trying to create a sort of religion for Americans. Yeah, but it's partly also that to dwell on the kinds of miracles that get popular, credulous audiences excited is to overlook the real miracle of creation and the awe that a deist cum Christian, as Jefferson called himself, somebody believed in the creator's creation was the most magnificent thing. And to try to understand it is a form of worship. That is, to understand its laws. Now, we think of scientists as 
hopelessly secular, and they don't get it, except maybe the cosmologists do. I don't know what they do in their spare time. Uh, but for Jefferson, so little was then known about how the world worked that it seemed almost like a miracle that we had the capacity to discern some patterns and some laws. And then that's, I think, the, the, big, the big issue for Jefferson, that sense of wonder and creation. But then it plays out in all aspects of life. Because if you believe in nature and nature's God and that there are lawful properties and patterns in nature, you try to understand them. You apply this knowledge in everything from botany, gardening, to, well, politics. Politics, the whole thing. So it, it, that was this point of, of departure that we had is sort of the last chapter, which we think is something that, you know, I, I think is a in addition to the understanding about his sort of shift on slavery, is really looking seriously at his at his religion. It's funny, my home state. Um, it's not funny. But I didn't bring home, it up. This you didn't time. bring it up. You, usually he mentions I, that I'm from usually Texas. Usually I point out that she's from Texas. You know, um, that sort of pulled him actually out of the textbooks um, that used to have a discussion of him as a figure of enlightenment. But because he didn't believe in the divinity of Christ um, and was a not a proper Christian they have pulled him out. Uh, he's now just a list of people in the Enlightenment, but not a full discussion of him. The discussion now has been, repla he's been replaced yeah. by John Calvin and St. Oh. Thomas of Aquinas. Okay, we asked um, about the Unitarians. How many, <laughs> how many Calvinists do we have? <laughs> the Calvinists there, who, Nobody who we thought were Nobody being a Calvinist, yeah, that's very yeah. interesting, because you, you won't be insulted then if I tell you that Jefferson thinks that John Calvin was an atheist. Why? Because he was a Neoplatonist who dealt in figments of his imagination, that is, ideal forms. You all suffered through the Republic at one point or another in your education, so you know all about that. Uh, they idolized the unreal. And if you're the master of the unreal, you get to interpret it for the idiots on Earth, then you have great power. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, something from, this it's a scam. Miracles, all this stuff is a way of exercising clerical power over you credulous people. No, not you personally, but you know what I mean. Well, that's what he said. And so, I mean, we end with, that's why he viewed it, that yeah. anything that stopped people from thinking for themselves was a problem. And so that's what the Jefferson Bible is supposed to be about bringing people together as opposed to supporting mystifications. I think it's about time for us to have some questions. We've sort of yeah, gone on long enough here. We've said a lot of here. questionable we can, we, things. We've said a lot of questionable things. Uh, but the fun part of it is to, um, no, the question you're supposed now. to say that, in fact, we, they're okay, taping, I, I so we actually need. I want to that I can read text, and I will do <laughs> well, this. You're not, you're supposed yeah. to not supposed we to do that. We will be taking questions. <laughs> we'll be taking questions. In a few moments. Yes. Yeah, if you would like to ask a question, please approach one of the two standing mics in the aisles. Before asking your question, tell us your name. And out of respect for the other people waiting their turn, please just ask one question. If you could frame them so that we could answer yes or no, more people would get to ask questions. <laughs> uh, Dr. Onuf, um, Aaron Hall, I studied with you at Virginia for a week a couple of years ago. Really appreciate it. Yeah, Aaron, great yeah. to see you. Yeah, and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, whole week. No, it's cool. I mean, he, he was an excellent student. <laughs> Ms. Gordon-Reed, I, I want to actually say in public thank you for the contribution you've made to our United States dialogue about race with your efforts. With oh, the, thank you. I, I just think such a leap forward there. 
square for us as best you can in three minutes or less. The, uh, the Jefferson Bible, the deism, and then the philosophy about slavery and race. How does, how does he square that sense from the Declaration of Independence, the lack of his deism, and then his belief? He, he doesn't free Sally Hemings upon his death. She has to be purchased. Uh -huh. by his... You want to start with that? Has to be purchased. He, he doesn't free her in his will. No, right? no he doesn't yeah. free her in his will. She just basically leaves Monticello and moves into Charlottesville with her sons. And uh, is, you know, and people ask me why he didn't do that. Why didn't he free her? And, and the only thing I could suggest is if you, if you think somebody should have done something, I think you have to sort of play it out and figure out what would have happened if he'd done the thing you think we ought to do. Um, you had to, he would have to put her name in a will, Sally Hemings, and everybody knew who Sally was in relationship to him. Um, he would, because she was over 45, um, she would have had to, he, he, she's 53, he would have had to explain how he was going to take care of her for the rest of her life, how he was going to be provided for so she wouldn't become a public charge. You couldn't free anybody below 17 or over 45 without doing that. Um, and he would have had to petition the legislature for her to remain in Virginia, and he's not going to do that. I mean, we would never have argued about this. If he'd done those, it would have been an admission that, yes, I was living with this person for 38 years and have all these kids. I don't know how to square it other than that he thought, and you're talking about the Calvinism and the religion. Well, just the, the deism. Well, Cal the deism and the religion. It, you know, that eventually, again, it's back to this notion of a future that he certainly didn't think that Sally Hemings and their children were going to go back to Africa. But in terms of black people in general, the idea was progress right. would bring a solution to this, that eventually that slavery was a backward system. He believed that, even though it wasn't. <laughs> Obviously, slave prices are going up. Uh, slavery is becoming much more entrenched. But he sort of kept this really sort of revolutionary sense, revolutionary war sense, that this was something that was going to go out of style. And that's hard for us to believe now because we know what happened. One way to think about it is that though the gospel he drew from Jesus' teachings had to do with the family of man, and he understood the teachings of Jesus to be uh, about humanity as a whole. And you're asking, the question implicit is, well, how could you then divide humanity up in this way? Well, that, the answer to that begins with self-government and how peoples in time and place and space organize themselves to fulfill their destiny on Earth. And peoples come from different places. And, of course, the enslaved people are going to be sent somewhere else. But his vision is not just of, over time, successive generations will be more enlightened but also that once the enslaved people have a nation of their own, are declared a free and independent people, then they will be in a position to meet their former masters on a basis of equality. So we imagine not a family of man now, but a family of nations in which all the differences that led to so much, uh, so much violence, so much injustice, would be overcome in, in this ultimate vision of uh, the human destiny to achieve a perfect Republican world in which there'd be a republic of republics. I mean, it's, uh, it's very fanciful. It, as Annette suggests, it runs against 
economic reality. And the sorry thing is that people could, in the midst of the American Revolution, imagine that slavery might disappear because when slave markets disappeared and markets for slave products disappeared, as they did during wartime, you could say, well, you know, this is not economically very viable. Adam Smith tells us it's a, it's a retrograde form of labor. It's going to be superseded in the fullness of time of free labor. But the, the story, the tragic story of early American history is that slavery become, became increasingly entrenched and prosperous and powerful. The United States was a slave power and a slave society. It's something we don't want to think about because we associate our history with those ideas that you're invoking here, Aaron. So uh, these are not problems Jefferson can resolve, except, I would say, as Annette does, through his belief in progress. And I would say that's a faith in progress. And he prays for this. And I think that's what's both admirable and most pathetic about Jefferson, because it's not something he can really do anything about. Thank you so much. Oh, well. <laughs> Uh, I have a question that might build off that well. Um, the Haitian Revolution seems like both the slave insurrection that Jefferson predicted and also an attempt to like build that black republic, a black nation state. Mm -hmm. Did Jefferson respond to the Haitian Revolution? And if so, oh, what yeah. was his yeah. Not well, not, not well. Not one of his most the, the, first, the, first letter he, the first letter he writes... Uh, to his daughter about the Haitian Revolution. It's sort of like, well, it's like a report. Well, you know, they, the Negroes have taken over and they will, they have formed a regular government, which is what will happen in all the rest of the, uh, the Caribbean states. Then he finds out that they're killing black, white people. The black people are killing white people. And it's like, oh, uh oh, not what he wanted. He feared that the contagion would come to the South. Because he many wanted of, to build a wall. Yeah, what? <laughs> Yes, and uh, it's, a it's metaphorical hard. wall. It's hard to do at sea. It's hard to do at sea. It just makes it even more difficult. But the fear is that this is what's going to happen to Virginia. A lot of the refugees come to Virginia and in Philadelphia and all of that. So he's not, you know, and then he says, and his administration doesn't treat with, with Haiti, doesn't recognize Haiti. And then as an elderly man, uh, there's a story about a person who comes to visit him at Monticello, and he says, well, you know, I would recognize Haiti, but the white people are too prejudiced to accept this. And we're sort of thinking, no, but the, the white people, you mean those other people over there, they won't accept it. It's I'm not prejudiced. It's those other people. Nobody ever thinks that they're, obviously thinks that they're prejudiced. So no, he, doesn't, he doesn't see that as... Um, he doesn't like the idea of blacks taking control and taking control by fighting. You know, when he talks yeah. about declaring them an independent people, his idea was, all right, we're going to emancipate them. We'll find a place to send them. We'll help support them for a few years until they're on their own. And then, you know, then we will have this, yeah. but not fighting for it, not fighting for their freedom right. and killing no, white people. Independence very, only is like a gift. It's exactly right. Yeah. It's okay. exactly, exactly right. Not, and it suggests a protectorate, a dependency, not a truly independent nation. They're not. They're not fighting. Yeah, they're not going to yeah. fight and kill people for their, for their freedom. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Ravi Rosden. Uh, in Jefferson's time, it was not unusual 
for widows and widowers to remarry. Why didn't he remarry? Well, the story is, the Hemings family's story is that on his wife's deathbed, she asked him not to remarry. She had, it wasn't like, oh, I want you mine, to be mine forever, <laughs> even in death. Um, she had had two stepmothers, and the thinking maybe because she said, and she says, they said, she said, she did not want another woman over her children. So you kind of wonder if maybe she had not had great relations with her stepmothers. So it, it was at the request of his wife that he not remarried, and he uh, is supposed to have agreed to that. And he didn't. He was 39 years old uh, when she died, and he died at 83. And you're right, that's what people, people did. And everybody had an expectation that when your spouse died, you got married again. His wife mm -hmm. had, had had a previous husband as a young woman, and she was a, uh, a widow when he married her. Thank you. Okay, uh, my name is Peter Lowe, and my question is this. Um, although heavily edited by Adams and Franklin, why do you think Jefferson was the man chosen to write the Declaration of Independence? Well, the easy answer is that he was an accomplished writer uh, known for his uh, incendiary pamphlet, The Summary Review of the Rights of British America, published in 1774, anonymously, but it got out. He'd written it. Uh, and uh, also, Adams was the atlas of the revolution. He was on all the committees. That's what we call committee people today are all atlases. Hmm. Uh, and uh, he was busy running a war. And the idea of uh, when and why to declare independence is up in the air. But what they knew is that Jefferson was a good man with words, and he was underemployed. Thank you. And he was a Virginian. <laughs> he was a Virginian. There's so much. I mean, there's serious politics going on. Because, of course, people from New England were in the vanguard, but Virginians had to appear to be taking the lead because Virginians are very concerned about that sort of thing. So that was the, the, the deal that was negotiated. Virginia and uh, New England, New York, they had to work together. Uh, and, uh, of course, the hotheads, the radicals, the Sam Adamses, the riots in the cities, all the stuff that provides the the basic narrative of the American Revolution, that's, that's Northern. But in Virginia, we have the great statesmen. They, they get to have a dynasty. Uh, New Englanders win the war for them, but then they get to have it. I'm, I'm not going to get resentful just because I'm from New England. Uh, uh, I mean, I went into the heartland of the Republican enemy and infested it, and it's never been the same since. Yeah. Well, that's a good explanation. Thank you. In terms of the development of core American values and ideas. Yep. How do you compare Tom Paine and Abraham Lincoln to Thomas Jefferson? Okay. Well. Uh, you, want to, you want to answer that as yes or no? Or yes or, or no? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, no. Uh, Paine and Jefferson are very close. There's no question about this. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, uh, Jefferson uh, risks some uh, political capital by welcoming Paine back to America when he is in disgrace, particularly among the solid Christians who are really upset with the age of reason, his uh, deist track. Uh, but uh, Jefferson is loyal. He doesn't, he, he doesn't spend a lot of time with Paine, but he does the right thing. And Paine is seriously alcoholic at this time. But Paine's vision, if you read Rights of Man, is, is, it, it is the quintessential statement 
of the kind of radical politics that Jefferson embraced, the notion that there should be no hierarchies, there should be no privileged classes, there should be no monopolies, there should be no established churches. This, this vision of a truly what we would call democratic world is most brilliantly elaborated by Thomas Paine. And basically, this is what Jefferson believed, too. Uh, he had his own refinements on it. Abraham Lincoln, that's a different story. Uh, Lincoln had the foresight, uh, he actually attributes foresight to Jefferson, to take a tax revolt, which is what it really was, and to translate it into a movement for human liberation. And Lincoln had no reason to like Jefferson particularly, because Lincoln was uh, uh, from Illinois, of course, he's a northerner. He's a Whig-turned-Republican, yet he had the brilliance to see that you needed to establish this arc, this storyline, that would take us back four score and seven years ago to that moment when Jefferson articulated principles for the ages, principles that Lincoln could appropriate and make America's principles. So without Lincoln, Jefferson's uh, enlightened ideas would have flickered out and died. And but he without, also believed in the colonization at one point. Uh, that's true. At oh, yes, first, he did. At first, he did. that's right. Well, I mean, you know, the colonization was the, the sort of liberal position. John Marshall did. Uh, James Madison did. James Monroe did. Harriet Beecher Stowe did. Lincoln did. Because people could not envision a multiracial society. When Jefferson says that in notes in the state of Virginia, he takes a real hit yeah. for it. But the truth is, because, you know, this is going, to be is going to be conflict. It will lead to a race war. And we sort of say, oh, that's terrible. That's ridiculous. We haven't had that. It's like, uh, what? Uh, we actually have had the kind of conflict. Uh, you think of the post-Reconstruction era, Jim Crow, all those kinds of things. There's been a hot war and a cold war that's gone on. And so it's a realistic assessment. I, I think it's sort of, how can I say this? It's like a version of, of today that unless you use a racial epithet, you can't be racist. I mean, you, you're looking the person who says something. Jefferson writes this stuff down because he's, again, as I said, you know, he's thinking about the American Revolution and the American nation. This is, obsesses him. And he really is thinking about the future. And he's thinking about it in a really systematic fashion. How is this going to work? How can black people and white people live together? Can they live together? And we like to say, of course we can. But if you look at our history, we're still trying to figure this one out. And he would have said, they can live together on my plantation. And that sounds like a cynical and cheap answer. But he did believe that, that he yeah. would take care of his people. We find this deeply offensive. Uh, but it is true that you can take the ideas that Paine and Jefferson articulated, that Lincoln then reiterated, and that can be the, the basis of a progressive politics and all due honor to Jefferson, he did believe in progress. And we're not going to tell you what he would think today if he were here, so I'd be very flattered that two distinguished historians were spending so much time on him. Just, oh, that, <laughs> yeah. that, was, that was terrible. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I like to think that he did not know and could not anticipate the end point. It just had to be better. And that, that is a touching faith, I think. And I think that's what Lincoln picked up on. Because uh, these were dark days that Lincoln had to survive, as all students of Lincoln know. And for him, 
to persevere in the face of the massive destruction of the Civil War, to believe there was a point to it all. He had to sustain a belief in those ideas. I, I, I love to think that Lincoln kept the Enlightenment alive despite the nasty 19th century that gives us uh, racial science, that gives us the British Empire, that gives us all the terrible things that the Brits did in South Asia and East Asia, 20 million people killed in the Opium Wars. Uh, it's not a nice century. It's dismal science, economics, I mean, you name it. It's terrible, but that light remained alive and burning, and that was the light of the Enlightenment. So say what you will about the Enlightenment, we could trash it until, well, until the light goes out. Uh, but it is the foundation, if there is any foundation, for what is worthwhile about our national values. Thank you. Hi, I'm Sid Lapidus. Annette and, and Peter, the repartee, repartee between the two of you is wonderful. You have such great senses of humor. How do you write a book? <laughs> Without breaking up in laughter periodically. <laughs> how, how, how did it work? Who does a first draft of a chapter? What, well, what is you, it like? We just sort of throw it out there. Do you want to try this? You want to try France? You want to try Virginia, the chapters? You want to try whatever? And I would draft a part of it and then send it to him. And he'd you know, look at it, rewrite things, add things. Um, then he would draft something. So it, it was we, back and forth. Our editor, Bob Weil at LiveWrite, who's wonderful, um, wanted us to have one voice. You know, a lot of times when people do this, one person will write a chapter, one person will write the other, but then you really can see the differences. We really wanted to try to make it. It was one point he was talking to me about something, and he said, you know, I really like the way, you, the way this is going, but I think you might want to change it. And I said, do you realize you wrote this? <laughs> <laughs> You know, <laughs> so we so we really did get to this point. I mean, you know, I could look at it, and I you know, everybody has their ticks. Every writer has a particular tick. You can say, "Oh, that's me," or "That's him." But most of it, you don't yeah. you don't remember who did what. Yeah. So that it, it's the it's the friendship that I think is crucial to it. It's mm -hmm. trust. Mm -hmm. It's the fact that we just have fun with each other and years of preparation when we weren't writing. Yeah. Yeah, because we talked to each other about this for a long period of time. I, I do remember one moment when we were, um, we were on a plane flight from um, Helsinki to uh, uh, Turin. And it was at the moment we were about to deliver the manuscript, and that's when it's all over at this point. Uh, and we would hand him, you know, I would hand him a piece of paper, and he'd sort of look at it and turn it, you know, and we could feel the tension because. You couldn't get up and go anywhere because we were on a plane, right? <laughs> uh, but those moments, that kind of thing was, you know, few and far between. For the most part, because we are friends and we don't have a wildly different view about Jefferson, it worked very well. And it was just a lot of fun. And there's no point in doing it if it's not fun. Well, Annette Gordon-Reed, Peter Onoff, thank you so much for a great evening. And thank you all for coming. Please stay for the book signing and enjoy your evening. Thank you. <laughs>